What's up, folks? Welcome back to the Whoop Podcast. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop, where we are on a mission to unlock human performance. That's right. We build technology across hardware, software, analytics that's designed to improve your health. Check out the Whoop membership at whoop.com and you can get 15% off if you use the code Will Ahmed. That's W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D. All right, we got an amazing episode, world-class HRV expert, Dr. Daniel Plews. HRV, of course, being heart rate variability. This is a deep dive on heart rate variability with an expert. Dr. Plews has been at the forefront of some of the most groundbreaking HRV research over the last 10 plus years. He sits down with Whoop VP of Data Science and Research, Emily Capitalupo, and our VP of Performance, Kristen Holmes, the dynamic duo, to discuss how you can apply your HRV data to your training. He's also an expert on nutrition and shares his philosophy on how to best shape your diet for the outcomes you're looking for. It's amazing. So much of heart rate variability research is core to the foundation of WHOOP. I mean, it was what I was reading when I was in college that made me say, wow, if we could measure heart rate variability continuously, what kind of a product could we deliver to the market? And Emily and Kristen and Dan touch on that. They also discuss how Dan started researching HRV and why he believes it's one of the best metrics for guiding training, why looking at HRV over multiple days is more important than a one-day snapshot, what steps you need to take to avoid overreaching during your training, how to best eat for your performance goals, and why there's no one blanket diet everyone should follow, and Dan's three pillars of excellent recovery, nutrition, sleep, and training periodization. This episode is a deep dive on the science of HRV and nutrition. I know you'll find something useful to apply to your life. So without further ado, here are Dan, Emily, and Kristen. Hi, everybody. I'm Emily Capitalupo, Whoop's Vice President of Data Science and Research, and I'm joined by my podcast, Other Half, Whoop VP of Performance Science, Kristen Holmes. Hi, everyone. Today, we are also joined by an incredibly special guest, Dr. Daniel Plews. Hey, thanks for having me on. Dr. Plews got his PhD from AUT in Auckland, New Zealand, where he studied HRV, one of our very favorite topics at Whoop. And he is responsible for an impressive amount of our understanding about the relationship between HRV and athletic performance and how to use HRV to optimize your training. Beyond HRV, Dan's 54 publications span functional resistance training for Ironman triathlon, plasma acidosis, anaerobic power reserve, and cycling time trial performance, HRV and blood glucose for the athletic populations, and ketogenic diets and their impact on athletic performance. Um, it's because of Dan's HRV research that I first learned about his work eight years ago, but his research is actually not the only reason why we're so excited to have him on today's pod. Dan is also an extremely accomplished athlete himself. He's been a competitive endurance athlete since he was nine, and in 2018 set a world record for his age group at the Ironman World Championship in Kona, Hawaii. He also coaches other athletes, including elite triathletes and the New Zealand National Sailing 
rowing and women's kayaking teams. And many of his athletes have won Olympic gold medals. So he's clearly on to something with his coaching and research. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're really grateful. No um, so let's get started at the beginning. So you did your PhD on heart rate variability way before heart rate variability was cool. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into HRV and how did you decide that of all of the things in the world, that's what you wanted to spend your PhD studying? I first heard about heart rate variability when I was in Singapore. So before I moved to New Zealand, I was based in Singapore. Um, and over there, I was an uh, exercise physiologist working for the Singapore Sports Council at the time. I'd, I'd done my master's by that point. Um, my master's was in running after cycling, basically, looking at the different effects of different types of cycling power outputs. Um, so like we're looking at the stochastic nature of cycling on marine economy. Moved to Singapore, worked as a sports scientist there. And when I was there, I was fortunate enough to meet Professor Paul Lawson, who was at the time doing a, a kind of a distance learning with Edith Cohen University of Singaporean students. And I was running the lab for that distance learning course. So we, we met, we hit it off, and he was coming over to New Zealand to be the head of physiology for the High Performance Sport New Zealand, which is in charge of the Olympic team. Um, so he's, he was doing a lot of HRV and he says, do you want to come over to New Zealand, work with me at High Performance Sport New Zealand and also do a PhD at the time? There's a hot topic at the moment. Everyone's really interested in heart rate variability. So that was kind of my first um, look into it. And, and I started doing some reading about the area. And I don't know if anyone's ever just read about HRV for the first time. It's, I was overwhelmed with confusion, to be honest with you, <laughs> when it comes to all the um, time domain analysis and the frequency analysis. And back then, you know, HRV, I think HRV has come a long way now that it's been simplified, simplified to for better understanding. And that's not simplified for the worse. In my opinion, it's been simplified for the better because it now has better practical application for for athletes. So, so yeah, so I did lots of reading and, um, and that was, that came over to New Zealand. Then we, we, we designed, um, a PhD all around heart rate variability with the idea that, um, we wanted heart rate variability to some way guide and be practically applicable for training. And of course, at the time as well, um, one of the papers that had just been pub published was the Kivalenium study mm -hmm. that was a high variability guided training his very first one that he'd ever done so that was also something that was really exciting and um kind of yes yeah, so that was in 2007 the right the yeah 2007 yeah. yeah yeah that's a great paper and we should link it in the show notes because that's actually fairly foundational to our recovery score um, yeah do you want to talk a little bit about what it was that he found yeah so i mean there's been i mean there's been a number of studies since but i think he was the first person to pretty much guide training based on heart rate variability. So he had two groups, one group just trained under a normal training program. And then the other group looked at, um, basically they did high intensity training or hard training when heart rate variability was high. And on days when heart rate variability was low, um, they did low intensity training. And that's basically how he guided the training. And from memory, I think he used one or two standard deviations above the norm um, if it was two, one sample, one or two standard deviations above the norm, he would do high intensity training. And if it was less than that, he would do low intensity training. Been a while since I've read that one, but I think it was something along those lines. But yeah. since then, he's also repeated that study. And um, there was another study that was done by um, Visterian as well. 
he's also showed the same thing. Um, another couple of studies come out this year from the Spanish groups that I was uh, authoring one of those papers as well, looking at block periodization versus um, HIV-guided training. That also had mostly positive results. And um, more recently, I was part of a meta-analysis that looked at VO2, changes in VO2 max using heart variability-guided training versus normal training. And the overall meta-analysis showed also positive results for heart variability-guided training. But um, yeah, small number, we call it a meta-analysis, but it's quite hard to do a very good meta-analysis when you're talking like, you know, six or eight studies. So, but still, it's, um, it's definitely promising. Yeah. Uh, so the paper that, that you helped co-author uh, that you just mentioned that came out in June, uh, which we should definitely link in the show notes. I actually just read it. I think it's a great paper. You talk about sort of two groups of athletes. They all happen to be elite cyclists in your case who uh, were following either a block periodized or an HRV based training program. Can you define those two different methods um, for people who aren't familiar? So block, so block periodization, basically, it's, it's exactly what it it says it's training in in blocks of time where you're really focusing on a specific adaptation or a specific area of training and then you move on to the next block and then you move on to the next block whereas hrv was more it was more based on um just like we talked about before where they're doing the high, high it's not really based on anything other than what the hrv is telling you so high intensity training when the hrv is um is high and low intensity training when the hrv is low and the block periodization is kind of quite traditional now so people will come up to a race and they'll train in blocks up until that race will kind of do a, a general phase a specific phase and the competition phase up to the race and then the general phase competition phase and uh, a specific phase and then the competition phase up until the race and that's kind of how everything's gone into those kind of small blocks and block periodization i think for folks just to further simplify it block periodization is, is quite rigid right and you know when you're using heart rate variability to guide training that's very fluid right it's it's based on the prescription is is of training is based on your recovery level, right? Which is which is exactly exactly, and it depends which school of camp you you sit in, really, because like the whole area of periodization, um, I, in my eyes at least, I believe is a bit of hogwash anyway, and it's based on a lot of dogma. There's really no evidence to suggest that periodized training is does anything that's more beneficial. Um, and there was a, there's a great paper that was written by Keeley. Um, I think it was in the um, 2010, 2011, and the title of it. Yeah, it's a great paper. Yeah, 21st century dogma or something like that, periodization. He just poo-poos the whole periodization. He puts forward re really good cases. And the reason being, this is where HRV can be so great, is because the adaptation to any kind of training stimulus is different um, depending on how you approach or you, you uh, um, present yourself at that training session. So even if you're, if you present yourself with low motivation, you present yourself with low sleep, you present yourself with low intent compared to someone who presents themselves with high motivation, high intent, they actually get better adaptation from doing that training session. So that's why having this pre-idea that, okay, this week we're going to focus on this, this week we're going to have a recovery week, this week, and you, know, you, you, might not, you might not need a recovery week at that time. And likewise, you may need to do a recovery week when you're actually doing a high intensity period. So it's, it's just, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan of basic periodization, really. So um, I think you should. My philosophy is that you, if it's an event, you have certain key determinants of that performance, whether it be anaerobic power, VO2 max, 
And all those items should be touched at one time, but how much you're touching on those particular items um, depends on where you are in the away from the competition. So you might do a little bit of like more of your kind of VO2 max work if you're further away from competition, if you're training for a, an event that requires a VO2 max. Whereas when you get closer to the competition, you're probably just doing a little bit more of that, but it doesn't mean you neglect it really, really early on. And that's kind of the way that I coach and train my athletes. So. Yeah, Dan, and, and the results of your paper really back up uh, your dislike for block periodization. Do you want to share what you found? The actual results were were reasonably similar, but the the real take home was that the HRV guided training group actually did a little bit less training as well mm-hmm. and had slightly better results, but it wasn't actually significant, but depends on where you, uh, I mean, to me, that's a positive result. Yeah. And I think that really speaks to the idea that you were just getting at where like, if you show up to training and your body's not really ready for that training, that, you know, you're not going to get the benefit out of it. So the fact that they got similar results with slightly less training is really interesting and, and kind of yeah. speaks to that you know, exactly. train smarter, not harder. And it's the, the exact, and it's the exact point that, um, you know, you do, I always like to say when you, when you train, you want to get as much bang for your book as you possibly can. And by doing, being smart, it's, um, it's the way forward. Emily and I, and, and just generally, we talk a lot about this concept of showing up for capacity, you know, and, and how that is actually, you know, kind of what you're doing away from training is actually most predictive, right, of, of next day capacity. Um, and, and I think it's probably a little bit different, Dan, in your world in that, you know, you're doing multiple sessions. This is tip of the spear, super and super intense training. Um, and, and that's obviously going to have a quite quite an impact on heart rate variability. But for folks who are not trying, you know, training for, for Kona, for example, or an Ironman, but are just, you know, working out for an hour a day, it's those other 23 hours that are, are really, really uh, critical in terms of how they deal with them that will be most predictive of, of next day HRV, next day capacity. Do you have any insights there on, you know, just for the regular Joe and then also for the Kona type athlete and how to deal with those other 23 hours? Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, it all comes down to recovery, right? And um, and for me, I always think of recovery as, as, um, as the three main pillars and the three main pillars for me are uh, nutrition, sleep and training. I'm going to say the word training periodization. But what I mean by training periodization is basically how you, where you place different training types. So, for example, if you're doing um, a high VO2 max session, you at least want to leave 48 hours before you would attempt to do that other type of session. Whereas if you're doing kind of more of a threshold based set, a threshold or kind of a tempo based session, you can probably leave more like 24 hours. So it's it's that it's the backing up of high of of training sessions that require high high heart rates and therefore high sympathetic stress that where the real problem comes in i actually had a question the other day someone asked me um i have a a, a, like a education community and one of the questions that came through was when is heart too hard too hard can i actually go too hard in training and my response was well it's really it's impossible to go too hard the only thing you can go do is go too hard too frequently so there's that is the that's the problem when it comes to 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 that sort of thing, and so it's so that so that's the so that's the training periodization. So having a good spacing between training and knowing what the right training types are is really key. And also, of course, sleep quality, sleep hours, and um, and and nutrition. I think is a massive one. You know, sticking away from refined foods, low processed foods, low sugar. Um, I think it has massive implications on recovery as well. Um, but of course, that's the beauty of H- HRV generally 
when you compare it to other training models, you might be familiar with like performance management chart, the, the Busso model, and there's also the Bannister model. You know, there's no, with those models, it's directly thinking that there is a, a, a relationship between load and therefore fatigue where it has no implications of what's going on in other people in your life. So lots of home stress, lots of work stress, all those sorts of things. They also have implications on your HRV. They also have implications on your overall sympathetic stress, and that can therefore affect how you present to that session. So um, they're all the things that you have to consider. And that's the beauty of HRV because it captures everything in one in one go, which is what I, what I really like. Yeah. So, you know, we at, at Whoop are obviously huge, huge fans of HRV. It's the foundation of our recovery score. It was one of the very first features that we built. But like as someone who both researches HRV and applies it as an athlete and a coach, what would you say are the limitations of HRV-based training? And, and what are those kind of like things to look out for? Well, I think one of the things, one of the main things, and I've written about this at, at length in a number of my, my papers is the um, I don't think in all, in all certainty that a one-day measure is is the way forward. I think you need to look at kind of rolling averages is always something that I'd be more of a fan of to, to give a better idea of what's happening and whether I'm going, going to make a change based on training, you know, because you can you can definitely have some false positives on, on some days and, and, and vice versa. Like some, you know, for example, there are, when I mean, you can have some examples, especially if people are doing high levels of endurance training where you get really, really high heart rate variability, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're feeling that great. So there's that to be aware of as well. I've always thought it's not the silver bullet and the question that the one single metric that you should look at, you need a variety of metrics to really um, know whether you're going to change training or not. And often, and often it's the it's really it's providing you with more certainty in a decision rather than making the decision for you. Um, that's the way I like to I like to particularly use HRV and all metrics. To be fair, so you know if an athlete presents and I'll see that they've got low HRV, their motivation to train is low. They had a bit of a bad session yesterday, and all those things together would make me make a decision, not just based on one metric on its own. So I think that's smart. Yeah, very. <laughs> Um, and actually, uh, your research, uh, especially some of those earlier papers between like 2013 and 2015 about the variability and heart rate variability actually being more important than heart rate variability did definitely inform our recovery score. And that's why we have a separate recovery score and like your daily HRV measure where we're modeling some of those effects and, and dampening sort of one-off values and, and um, focusing more on trend-wise what's going on. Um, at yeah, the end of the day, I, I guess the, you know, the CV, the CV of the HRV, the day-to-day CV of the HRV, you know, that's well, another... Variant. May, may I just want to explain that, Dan, real quick. For okay. Our, for <laughs> okay, so the CV, the day-to-day coefficient variation of the heart rate variability so basically how much is your heart rate variability score changing on a day-to-day basis um, is another another score that you can add to your hrv score on that day to help you make a make a decision so so what we, what i found in i think it was my first ever publication actually was in ejap and i think it was 2013 when we looked at the over non-functional overreach athlete and we found that in that particular case um, the, the athlete who became non-functionally overreached, they had descending heart rate variability and also descending um, day-to-day variations in the HRV. 
So that's what we found in that particular case. But I know that since then, Andrew, Andrew Flat has kind of also suggested that when someone goes into a new training stimulus, for example, you typically see more day-to-day -day variation in the heart rate variability, which can also mean that they're, they're quite highly stressed. So to me, it's now looking like it's kind of both sides, you know, too much, too little variation and a lot of variation is almost a, a bit of a warning sign. So, yeah, so that's um, yeah, the old, um, the, CV, the CV and the HRV, I think that was actually the title of the paper that we mm -hmm. published was the, the main, the main, um, the main crutch of it. So, Daniel, can you kind of talk in practical terms for, you know, a member who's, who's trying to use heart rate variability to understand, you know, how they're adapting to a training stimulus, what would be your advice on, on how to, how to think about the data and, you know, when to back off, when to push, um, let's say if they're, if they're trying to, to get fitter. So they're really trying, you know, they're, they're functionally overreaching, you know, what would be that cadence um, that you think would, would be kind of ideal for someone to shoot for? So I think first, I always think context before content. So you have to think of the context of the training that that person's doing. So if I, if I speak about specifically an Ironman or an endurance-based athlete, which is the type of athletes that I work with the most, um, those sorts of athletes, for example, they're doing a lot of low-intensity endurance-based based work. So they're doing um, a lot of volume during the week, um, predominantly 70 to 80% of that is a, a heart rate lower than their aerobic threshold, so pretty easy. And, you know, they will be getting, to speak in, in whoop terms, they'll be getting strain scores 20 plus nearly every day, pretty much. So with athletes like that, what you typically tend to see is that if everything is going well, and HRV, we're talking like a rolling average on the HRV, and we're looking at, say, RMSSD, it will gradually, during a training block, it will gradually increase and go up and up and up. And it will stay elevated to a period of time. And that's what we I would classify as something that's quite functional and like functional overreaching. And that was shown, and it's been backed up by a couple of studies as well. So Bellinger um, backed this up and also Jan Lemur backed this up in one of his um, studies in triathletes that was published in MSSE, the Medicine, Sport and Science and Exercise Journal. Um, he, showed, he showed that what happened is that during periods of training in triathletes with low intensity, HRV would go up over time and then it would kind of peak. And then as they rested and recovered, it would come back down and then they would have a very good performance. But when he tested them at periods when the HRV was very high, they, ne they didn't necessarily perform that well um, from, a, from an absolute performance standpoint. So, and that's what, and I also saw that in many of my Olympic rowers and published a paper in sports medicine that showed the same thing. So that's typically what you see on the other side, if you're doing, if you're an endurance athlete and HRV is continuously going down and you're not getting that gradual increase over a training block, it's definitely a sign that something is wrong, either in your sleep, in your daily stresses, in your training intensity distribution very often, in your work-life balance, all those things. There's, there's, you know, there's, there's something that has to be investigated and, and changed to make sure that you're not too sympathetic all the time because at the end of the day, you can only... You can only cope with so much sympathetic stress in the day-to-day day-to-day activity, and you know it comes down to well, not only performance but also health as well. So, so Daniel, we have a, a lot of folks on the platform who are strength and conditioning coaches who are you know having to prescribe training across 
you know, large groups of, of people. Do you have any advice or, or recommendations for, for those individuals on, on how to kind of customize, but, but customize at scale? Um, because I, I think that's, I think oftentimes why folks just defer to block periodization because it's, it's just easier, right? To just have kind of a blanket approach to training and not really look at how someone is, is actually the capacity that they, they show up uh, to training and, and, and then, you know, be able to modulate volume and intensity based on that. So what's, what's your kind of recommendation for folks who are training larger groups? Yeah. Well, yeah. I guess the way you, the way you can do it. And as you know, I, I've worked with, with Zwift, right. And yeah. um, some of the things that we had done in Zwift is that we actually tagged every single training with like a, a high, high reliability score. And um, if I was going to do things on scale and actually I do do this in scale because I have an Endure IQ training squad. And within that training squad, every single training type, as I like to call them. So what, what I mean by a training type is a, a session with a specific outcome and a specific intensity attached to it. So a VO2 max session, a speed session, endurance session, uh, 70.3 development session, a strength session, all those sorts of sessions, they have a, a score attached to it. So for example, Endurance sessions, you know, you can have your score in green, orange, or red, whatever. But a VO2 max session, you know, if it's red, you don't really want to be doing a VO2 max session when it's in red. So if you were going to do things on scale, that's the way I would do things is that, and then um, you can pick and choose sessions based on how you're presenting in that day rather than just, um, yeah, so, you, you know, you've got a, a whole variety of low HRV sessions, a whole variety of high HRV sessions, and they're the ones that you can pick and choose, and that makes it a bit more of a scalable, a scalable factor. So Love it. I think I think we're the only like at Endure IQ at the moment. We're the only people who have really done that. So every session we have a, a specific tag based on heart rate variability for for that reason. I love that. I mean, we'd be able to do that with the community feature. You know, if you have a coach who has you know visibility um, over their community, you know, you could just help, but just bucket folks basically, you know, on based on recovery and. And, you know, to your point, just have like a, a laundry list of, if you're green, laundry list of workouts. If you're, you know, yellow, laundry list of workouts. And if you're red, yeah. laundry workouts. And, and exactly. And I think that's the future of, um, you know, the future of of scalable workouts. And, and, and maybe even coaching is this kind of AI-based, AI-based coaching methods. Um, so I'm, I'm, part, I'm a co-founder in a company called Trick, who we're just looking at. We're just starting and we're just going for some, we're looking at beta testers quite soon, but the idea is is that the is that very thing that I just talked about in that the workouts will change in accordance to with how you're presenting in a recovery standpoint, and it changes based on the training types that you're doing. And that's because for that very reason, the adaptation that you're gaining from every session is very dependent on how you're presenting, and you know the whole multiple of things benefits of training that way. You're not going to be overtrained. You're going to be more healthy. You're going to get more bang for your buck when you're training. Um, so yeah, so that's, um, so that, that's, um, that's the future, I believe in those kind of scalable workouts. Dan, one of the things that I think is so interesting about your work is that you're your own best test subject. And, you know, I think one of the areas where this is particularly true and is in a lot of the research that you've done around, uh, diets for athletes. Um, so I know that you are a fan of the high fat, very low carb diet. Can you talk about the research that you've done there and how that differs from the ketogenic diet? Yeah, so um, I guess it will, I'll, I'll deem it the high fat, 
Um, healthy fat, low carb diet, not um, high fat, because I, I prefer to keep the word healthy in there. Because otherwise, that is better. Just, yeah. just to avoid people going and buying, you know, frying up all the sausages and thinking they're doing a great job, you know. <laughs> yeah, so I guess um, I'll, I'll try and talk about my journey. I mean, I've been doing triathlon since I was um, since I was nine years old, and I was a national um, youth champion, national junior champion back in the UK, and. Um, you know, I was always taught that high carb was the way forward and, you know, carbs are the absolute fuel source of for everything and phenoxidate fat and fats were to be avoided at all costs. Through my own reading, through my own research, I discovered the what when Tim Notes was talking about the low carb diet, um, I tried it myself. And I guess through a lot of experimentation, even going to as, into ketogenic diets, I found that I really stepped up my performance, particularly when it came to long distance triathlon, you know, talking about Ironman. But I only really, but it was, it took me a lot of time to experiment, to go like quite low to a ketogenic diet to kind of now finding this kind of what I would describe as more of a low carb diet, which is where you're kind of, you're titrating in carbs around training a little bit more, but they're also a, a fraction higher. So rather than being what ketogenic would be described as less than 50 grams per, per day, you're talking more between 130 to 150 grams per day, but particularly um, putting those in and around your training training sessions with the idea is that you're doing everything you can to try and increase your your, your fat oxidation um, because for particularly for long-distance triathlon where you're talking events that are lasting eight to nine, you know, for some people, 12 hours, the preservation of endogenous carbohydrate stores, so internal carbohydrate stores, are absolutely critical. So by shifting your fat oxidation to burn more fat at a given intensity, say 260 watts, you can shift your the amount of cut. Like you, you may have been at 20% from fat, and you can shift that towards 70% from fat. has massive implications on how you preserve those stores. And, and at the end of the day, that really helps because it stops you um, – from basically running out of glycogen and from one for the term that's often used is bonking or hitting the wall, um, which is a massive problem for many people doing long distance triathlon. But also um, I've, I've personally have found that I held, hold my weight a lot better as well. I don't have these fluctuations in weight. I'm, I'm a lot leaner all year round. And also um, I can just take less fuel on. So my stomach's a lot better when I'm doing these, um, doing these longer distance events. So. Yeah, so that's kind of how I got into it. And now I've got a course on the matter and so I won Kona following this diet as well. Yeah, so actually, and we can link to your course in the show notes, but one of the things that you actually published on not too long ago was how depending on how elite you are at triathlon that your fueling needs might be different. Because I know that you know some people might listen to what you just said and go like, oh, that's how Dan won Kona. That's what I should do. But I know that your your research maybe suggests that somebody who's maybe taking a lot longer to finish an Ironman, like 11, 12 hours, might want to adopt a different fueling strategy. If you look at, um, so say you take two athletes and you take a, like a 12-hour Ironman athlete and then you take an eight-hour Ironman athlete. So the, the biggest difference between those two athletes is calories burn in a minute. So the, the eight-hour athlete will be burning way more calories in a minute than the 12-hour hour, hour athlete because they're doing because they're doing it at a much higher level. And because because of that, you know, you can produce you can produce 
power or energy with fat to a certain point and you know that's probably going to be maxed out in a race even if you're a good fat burner it's most likely going to be maxed out at like 1.2 to 1.3 grams per minute and then the rest will will come from carbohydrates whereas um so that addition additional energy additional power has to therefore come from carbohydrates so if you now take the the lower end athlete they could probably cover their all all their energy requirements with pure fat, whereas an elite athlete they will not be able to cover all their energy requirements, most likely with pure fat. So what so where we, what we wrote in this paper is it was course um, it was called horses we call it horses on the same courses, different horses on the same courses because everyone does the same course in an Ironman, but the two the two horses are very very different, whereas the the lower end athlete who's who's not producing who doesn't have that much overall calorie requirement can probably get away with just having more of a fat-based fuel when you talk about the elites you will have to have some form of carbohydrate um stores taken no matter how good your fat oxidation is so even with me my my maximal fat oxidation rate is 1.4 grams per minute which is it's pretty high um but i still took 50 grams of carbs per hour when i would do for the duration of the bike, at least when mm-hmm. I did um, when I when I did Kona, so um, so yeah, it's, um, it's as as with all these things and nutrition, I have all, even even with the low carb diet, I would never say that it's the answer to everyone and it works for every single person. It, it certainly doesn't, but I think there's definitely if, if it's something that you decide to do, there are nuances within it that have to be tackled correctly to do it right because many many people get it very very wrong. You know, it's just such an interesting topic. You know, I think, you know, when you when you consider just how critical nutrition is, you know, when it comes to being able to achieve results, Daniel, when you when you think about the importance of nutrition, you know, when you stack that with kind of sleep, they're obviously both extremely important. Like how much do you attribute nutrition to to achieving results? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I attribute nutrition massively to achieving results but i also believe is that nutrition has to be specific to the outcome so like what what i'm talking about now is an event that requires a high fat oxidation so and it's like people often say oh high fat diets doesn't work it's it's a load of it's a load of hot wash And, and to me it's as crazy as saying oh bench press didn't improve Ironman performance. It's like, yeah, no, no nonsense. Like, of course it didn't. But, but like, so you, you talk about people saying, oh, you know, high fat diets, they're hopeless for 10K, they're hopeless for a 10K race walker. But it's not, you know, it's not an event that requires you to have a decent fat oxidation because it's not really a key determinant. So, so that's where nutrition is really key. So if I was training a bodybuilder, for example, you know, what, what are they trying to achieve? Are you trying to increase more muscle? You know, then therefore high protein, high carbohydrate, you actually want some insulin to actually grow and get bigger and get more muscle. Um, and so there's lots of different things and nuances where I think the diet shifts dependent on the outcome. So, you know, 400 meter sprinter doesn't really need to be on a low carb diet, for example. Um, I do believe that current guidelines for nutrition are too carbohydrate dependent, but there's no way that, you know, a 400 meter sprinter needs to be training their fat oxidation because it's just not a, a thing. Neither does a, a crossfitter, you know, that's not really an important thing either, but um, there's, um, but it depends on the outcome. Is it a health outcome? Is it a performance outcome? All these different things um, is dependent on the nutritional strategy that you, that you go forward with. 
Yeah, Dan, I'm, I'm so glad that you made this point because I think it's so important. And I think that like there's such a tendency to want to distill everything to sound bites that we lose mm-hmm. the fact that like your research and sort of your own experience, you're talking about, you know, six plus hour endurance events and the way that you need to feel for those are are specific to what you're trying to do. And so, you know, there isn't really, I mean, there are foods, I guess, that are just blanket bad, um, but there isn't, you know, the best diet and a worse diet and, you know, keto versus paleo versus whatever. And like these many grams, like it's really, it's about like the diet that that's matching your goals. And so the way that you're going to want to train, even within endurance uh, sports, right, it could change between, when you're in season and out of season and really close to a race. And so, you know, this, we should stay away from this kind of like, Oh, this is how he won a gold medal or, you know, Kona championship, like, and therefore it's best. Like that's only true if you're also trying to race a six hour. Exactly. Know, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally agree. And and I think um, everyone, everyone puts themselves in a, when it comes to nutrition specifically, you know, everyone puts themselves in a bit of a, a camp right whereas you know i'm a low carb i'm a vegan i'm a paleo and and it and i and i and i'm not that way at all um you know i i i try i i eat in a certain way because i'm trying to maximize my recovery i'm trying to maximize my um my fat oxidation that's very critical for the sport that i do um you know i'm trying to achieve a certain body weight as well like for ironman you have to be pretty lean you have to I mean, I have to literally shred to get to my raceway. I will drop a lot of muscle mass because as soon as I start, don't really focus on something. I actually get, I get a lot heavier, and then I I strip down and I'm a lot skinnier. But it's not coming from fat. A lot of it comes from muscle as well. So there's lots of different things. So in that particular case, I'll have to look at my protein and not take on quite as much protein. And all these sorts of things are are critical to the outcome. And that's why having a, an outcome-based nutritional approach is the is the way forward. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's where a lot of folks fall down. Um, you know, particularly individuals who are doing lots of different types of workouts across a week. You know, it's I think principally your activity requirements should drive your fueling behaviors. You know, to mm. me that makes a lot of sense. If I want to run fast, I'm going to eat a certain way. If I need to run a long time, I'm going to eat a certain way. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. like I, exactly. you know, if, if I'm going to be resting and sitting on the couch, I'm going to eat a certain way. Um, yeah. You know, it's activity requirements drive fueling behavior and. Um, yeah, and and I think that's where nutrition science, frankly, it drives me a little crazy. And 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 that there's you know this kind of blanket prescription. In the yeah. same way that we try to blanket prescribe training, right? Like not based on all these contextual factors that really are going to influence whether or not you get the outcome you want. So, yeah, I think it's um sometimes it's to, to Emily's point, you know, it's oversimplified or distilled down into these yeah. sound bites that it's really a, a, a little bit more. Um, it's not over compli- overly complicated, but it is a little bit more sophisticated than that. And and it's worth the time, I think, to to really try to unpack it in a way that, um, you know, gets you the the results that you want. You know, because you just end up wasting a lot of time and effort um, by doing it incorrectly or, or create a lot of friction that's entirely unnecessary. Hundred percent, Kristen. And and one of the just to give an example, one of the main things that I see, uh, particularly with um, nutrition and people not really understanding what they're doing is when it comes to fasting. And you know, there's this massive thing now where people are like, um, you know, they love like not eating until one o'clock and they're doing these like intermittent fasting windows and, and they'll try and do that. They'll go on a low carb diet and they'll do fasting. And then they go, Oh, this, this low carb diet is not working for me. It doesn't work. And I'm like, well, look at, look at how many calories you're eating a day because you're doing fasting, you're doing low carb, which is an appetite suppressor. 
and you're like 2,000 calories less than your requirement and you're complaining about you feeling bad and you're blaming the lack of carbohydrates. It's like, and that's, this is one of the things that, um, in, why, why I felt I had to do the course that we've built is because I just wanted to help people get the right information and do, thing, do things correctly. And, you know, the, it's that very thing is that, you know, people do fasting but still train. It's not really designed, intermittent fasting isn't really designed for people who are training more than 10, 20 hours a week, right? So, you know, and then you're in all sorts of trouble. Yeah. Yes. So, Dan, you actually published uh, some survey data about training fasted, which is. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about those results? You're really testing my mind because I'm like <laughs> trying to remember all these studies. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's, I've, no, I've Google stalked you more successfully than you've Google stalked you. Yeah, I should. So I should have Google stalked myself and uh, jumped. That's where we know before. Dan has a has a you know all his research <laughs> assistant minions doing all the work. We know what's happening. No, it's dead. true. <laughs> If you ask me anything about my own PhD work, I'd definitely be able to give you more concrete answers. But I do read them all and I do contribute. So um, so here you go. So I do know. So that that one, we, we actually published two papers um, on the on the survey. So Jeff, Jeff Rothschild is my PhD student. And Jeff's doing a great PhD because he's looking at the um, the effects of pre-feeding on training adaptation. So, um, so the first part of his PhD was to say, okay, what do athletes think they know about train about eating before training? So let's get a general consensus to see what happens. So within that survey, we got nearly like 2,000, 2000 people replied to that, that survey. And the main outcome was around fasted training. And it was like, okay, so why do you not do fasted training? And the answer was, um, I don't do fasted training because I think it's bad for my training adaptation. And then the next question was, why do you do fasted training? And the, it was about 50, it was almost 50-50. And the answer was, I do fasted training because it's good for my training adaptation. So it's clearly that people don't, um, they have very little idea of why they do things and what's beneficial and what's not. So you've got these two camps that is like one saying that fasted training is really bad for the training adaptation and the other one saying it's really good for your training adaptation. So, um, which, which was really good for us because it just went to show that this is a PhD topic well worth pursuing because no one really actually knows the, the answer to those questions. And when it comes to pre-exercise feeding, there's literally been no studies that have been done in, um, in athletes who, in athletes really, it's been pretty much done on like obese, obese populations and looking at, looking at things like that. So, um, so yeah, so Jeff's doing, um, a great job and we, we, we're doing, we're, we're doing, I mean, his PhD is something that I find massively exciting. Um, awesome. so, um, yeah, we've, we've already, we're already finding some really cool data on that. So. Very cool. So what else are you working on? Anything else worth talking about? Um, so I'm, I'm pretty busy at the moment. My main focus at the moment is the America's Cup. So um, we've got the America's Cups just around the corner here in, in New Zealand. So it's pretty much crunch time. So that's, that's, that's requiring a lot, of, a lot of my focus. Got to make sure the America's Cup doesn't go to America and stays in New Zealand. <laughs> Um, so, so do we have the, like the, all the teams are over here now we're doing some racing. There's, um, plenty going on with that. So that's, that's one of my main, my main focuses, um, building, looking at building a new course for Endure IQ, which will be all around monitoring, nice. um, and also growing, um, growing the, growing the training squad. And then also what I've already mentioned is trick this AI coaching application. So that's, um, that's really exciting at the moment. And I think it's going to revolutionize the way 
people people train specifically for triathlon. Um, so we're looking um, just building that up, building the you know it's almost ready to the stage where we're going to be getting some beta testers soon. So that's um, absolutely super exciting. Um, and then other than that, um, yeah, working with my with my students and um, trying to trying to get a bit more research out there. Like as soon as the, when the America's Cup's done, I have been a little bit. I think I'm saying I've been a little bit less into the research in the last few years, even though I've still published five things apparently, um, <laughs> uh, five publications. But yeah, so I'm going to hopefully get a bit more into that. But with with the whole COVID situation, we're just a little bit um, hamstrung at the moment with with students, unfortunately. So we've got a lot of people who are wanting to come in and um, and be students, and but they just just all on the waiting list because there's as you know new zealand doesn't have anyone any any um, foreigners or any new students coming in so any anyone that we have are all um local and the pool's quite small with a four million population so oh well yeah yeah not not many people out of 4.5 million want to do a um a phd in sports science <laughs> but it's so interesting yeah well, thank you, Dan, so much for joining us tonight. Uh, we really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, if anybody wants to find you or get more information, where can you be found? Um, I'm guessing I'm pretty active on Instagram. So you can follow me on Instagram. It's um, at the Plues. Um, and obviously have EnduroIQ.com um, website as well. Um, so you can look up, look up there. And we have a, I actually have a weekly newsletter. Um, it's called The Brew Up. So, yeah, if you do sign up to that, if you do go in there, sign up to The Brew Up. Because, and with The Brew Up, it's like we call it The Brew Up because it's five. Being English, I'm quite into my – I'm from Yorkshire. And in Yorkshire, we have Yorkshire tea. And there's five steps to making the perfect Yorkshire tea. So we call it The Brew Up. And we give five <laughs> – little tips every week on generally i'll cover a great podcast that i've listened to a book that i'm reading a great workout um some new science and some new and some new tech that i've tried something like that so um yeah, that. So, so be sure to be sure to sign up to that and there'll be a lot of cool resources in the show notes uh daniel you obviously pointed out a, a ton of different things that you're working on and uh and uh, yeah we'll be sure to link to all that as well for folks Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, we'll speak again soon. Thank you. And thank you, Kristen. Oh, yeah, of course. Thank you to Dan for coming on the podcast and sharing all of his research on HRV. A reminder, you can get 15% off a WHOOP membership if you use the code Will Ahmed, W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D at checkout. You can follow us on social at WHOOP, at Will Ahmed. And we are wishing all of you to stay healthy and in the green.